This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Turn to First uh, Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. Like you, I have many favorite portions of Scripture, and uh, this is certainly one of my most favorite. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the wisdom or the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, we um, enter into a, uh, it's not a new section, but Paul is continuing in his argument and here he's beginning to advance the argument that we'll pick up in in a second. And So chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, actually forms a coherent and and crucial part of Paul's argument with the Corinthians. And so it's, it's important to remember, as we proceed through this, that the Corinthians had become enamored with, uh, with Sophia, with the idea of wisdom. And uh, we've seen that, um, that Sophia has the idea of not just worldly wisdom, but but philosophy and persuasion and rhetoric and 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 they were enamored with these things it was a part of their culture and it was as if they had embraced the gospel through Paul's preaching but then um then they began to as it were try to make uh improvements on the gospel improvements on the gospel um making it more palatable to the culture around them trying to make it more persuasive to the intelligent and the so-called wise. In a sense, trying to make the gospel uh, more respectable. It's not as if we're unfamiliar with these things. And what is going to happen is that in, in their uh, hankering after, as it were, something higher than the gospel and trying to polish up the gospel with human wisdom that they end up setting themselves up to be followers of men and as a result become divisive in the process. And that's the very first thing that Paul begins to identify. I have heard it through Chloe's people that there are divisions among you. 
Some say you are of Paulus, and some say of Cephas, and some of Paul, and some of Christ. Has Christ been divided? And so this is, this is the problem that Paul is facing. Paul's not just, it's important to understand, Paul's not just facing this idea of, uh, of division and party spirit. There is something that is uh, underneath. There's something that's at the root of it, and that is the Corinthians' own pride and arrogance in thinking that somehow they can improve on the gospel by Sophia or human wisdom. And so Gordon Fee, he's just excellent in this section. He says, the gospel is not some new Sophia, wisdom or philosophy, not even a new divine Sophia. For Sophia allows for human judgments and evaluations of God's activity. But the gospel stands as the divine antithesis to such judgments. Paul recognizes that to move beyond the cross is not to move on at all, but is to abandon Christ altogether. It seems as if the Corinthians had come to the realization that a message about a crucified Messiah was certainly not a popular message, and of course... Uh, a message of super spirituality and a message revolving around instead of the power of the Holy Spirit would have been much more palatable to the culture around him, which valued the idea of power and esteem and, and uh, a demonstration of personal gifts. And so uh, we pick up from where we left off a couple of few weeks ago, uh, verse 17, Christ sent me to preach. And so just as we pointed out, 110 is, in a sense, the turning point in the letter. So 1, 1 through 9 is introduction, salutation, all that. Verse 10 is the turning point where Paul now starts to begin to address the issues of the Corinthians. And just as verse 10 is a turning point, verse 17 is the turning point of the argument. Okay? And so Paul says, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so the cross of Christ would not be made void. And so he says, first of all, Christ did not send me to baptize. And um, now, we pointed out a few weeks ago, Paul's not diminishing the importance of baptism. But what he is saying is he's underscoring the reality that it is the proclamation of the gospel that brings salvation, not baptism. If baptism is what would bring salvation, then Paul would say, Christ sent me to baptize. But instead, it's Christ sent me not to baptize because it is not in baptism that there's salvation. It's in the gospel that there's salvation. He didn't send me to baptize, but he did send me to preach the gospel. And so for Paul, his, his whole life... Uh, Paul didn't have, um, um, you know, a personal life and then a ministry life. For Paul, this is all woven together. His life revolved around and was inextricably connected with the idea of preaching the cross, preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, and he knew that in those things, God was active to save those who believe. And so this is a redemptive event for Paul. To preach the gospel, to preach Christ, is the way in which God is pleased to work. And this is what Paul's going to expand on in 118 through 2.5. That is, preaching the gospel, preaching the cross, is a redemptive event. 
And then Paul states very clearly that he was not sent to preach the gospel in, literally, in wisdom of word. That is the idea of worldly wisdom or human wisdom. Uh, rhetorical skill, the idea of of preaching uh, in order just to win an argument, to impress people, to persuade people, um, not by the content, but by how it's done. Paul says, that's not how I was commissioned to preach the gospel. And again, I hope you see that there's just this, there's this incredible relevance to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 for us today. Because we too live in a time where we think that we can, in a sense, improve on the gospel, make it more palatable, make it more culturally respectable. We think that there are ways in which we can, through you know the uh, cleverness of, of human ingenuity, make the gospel somehow uh, just better. And the reality is, is you can't make it better. And the minute you try to improve on it, and the minute you try to make it better, you end up nullifying its power. And that's exactly what Paul says. I'm I'm not interested in cleverness of speech. I'm not interested in, in trying to dress the gospel up with human wisdom. I'm not interested in trying to persuade people just for the sake of showing, you know, how sophisticated I am and how oratorically skilled I am. He says, I did not do that, so the cross of Christ would not be made void. And so it's important to see that Paul thinks that relying on human wisdom or relying on Sophia actually um, uh, nullifies the power of the cross. Now, now understand that Paul, Paul doesn't think for a minute that a human being can somehow drain the cross of its power. All right, that's, that's not what Paul's saying. You can no more drain the gospel of its power than you can drain God of his power, okay? But what Paul is saying is there is a way to go about preaching, there's a way to go about trying to evangelize that if you so dress it up with, with, with human wisdom and cleverness uh, and, and human ingenuity, that what you end up doing is you end up actually drawing people not to the cross itself, not to Christ, but you end up drawing people to the cleverness of your argument or the persuasiveness of your speech. In other words, for Paul... Human wisdom and the cross are mutually exclusive. They're incompatible with each other. And how is the cross emptied of its power? Well, when the preacher is going for the approval rating, he cannot be faithful to the message of the cross. We're going to see that so clearly tonight. So then, so after Paul says that in verse 17, then he moves into this, this magnificent argument in 118 through 25, and we could call it the gospel, a contradiction to human wisdom, but the very wisdom and power of God. And so here are the Corinthians, they're boasting in men, they're boasting, you know, I like Peter because Peter is, you know, he's got that, that Jewish thing going, and well, I like Apollos because he's got that, that, that persuasive rhetoric going, and well, I like Paul, you know, Paul's the guy that kind of brought us the gospel, and I think Paul's smarter than you think he is, and well, you guys are all washed up, we're the super spiritual ones, we are of Christ, and so they're boasting in men, and it's in their 
their division that's actually contrary to the gospel itself. Think about that. To attach yourself to a human being is to do something that's absolutely contrary to the gospel itself. Because the gospel is not about following men. The gospel is about following Christ. And so here's the Corinthians, their own sense of superiority, their own sense of maturity. Could you imagine going to a church with a bunch of people that all thought that they'd arrived? Bet that was fun. Okay, knowledgeables, and, and here they are just actually just living a life in church that's contrary to the very gospel itself. And now what Paul's going to do is Paul is going to re-anchor them where they need to be re-anchored, which is in the cross itself. David Garland actually says, Paul is covertly undermining the Corinthian party spirit. And so in 1, 18 to 25, it's going to be the cross, which is the wisdom and power of God. We're going to see that Paul demonstrates the cross is actually foolishness to the Greeks, stumbling block to the Jews. The cross has, is a message of weakness. And yet it's going to be in this very paragraph that we see, as one commentator puts it, one of the truly great moments of the Apostle Paul. And then 1, 26 to 30. One is the divine calling, the wisdom and power of God. And Paul's going to actually remind these Corinthians, uh, you know, uh, you might think you're, you're hot stuff now, but guess what? When the gospel came to you, there weren't that many that were hot stuff. Okay? And uh, he's going to remind them that those who are saved by the cross are also foolish and also weak, not th- their own self-perception notwithstanding. Paul's reminded them of the beginning of their faith. And then 2, 1 to 5 is sort of the recap, preaching the cross, the wisdom and power of God, where it's the method of proclaiming the word of the cross, although again, having the appearance of foolishness and weakness is the demonstration of the Spirit's power. So, Gordon Fee again says, the cross stands in absolute uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. The cross, in fact, is folly to humanly conceived wisdom, but it's God's folly, folly that is at the same time his wisdom and power. All right, so verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, just just notice that little word four in verse 18 is explanatory of verse 17, okay? So Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so the cross of Christ would not be made void. For, here's the explanation, for the word of the cross is foolishness. Now, when Paul says the word of, of the cross, he's talking about, obviously, the message of the cross, the message that he preached. Now, if you're driving down Hayborn, you're coming this way, you'll notice that on the outside of this back wall, there is actually a cross that uh, that is on this north wall, okay? If you pull into the parking lot, 
you'll notice there's a fake bell. I wish it was real. I'd, I'd, I'd ring it regularly. Um, but on top of that fake bell tower, there's a cross. Okay? We're accustomed to seeing it, right? We're accustomed to seeing a cross. You have to understand, though, when Paul says the word, the message of the cross, he's talking about something that in his day, from a Greco-Roman and Jewish perspective, the cross was not something that you'd put on a building. The cross is not something that you would wear around your neck. If you wore a cross around your neck, people would have thought you were a sicko. Because the cross represented a cruel and shameful death. There was nothing, there was nothing glorious about a cross. There was nothing attractive about a cross. There was nothing decorative about a cross. In fact, uh, Martin Hengel in a classic work called Crucifixion uh, did a historic study on the perspective of crucifixion or the perspective of cross in first century Greco-Roman culture and the reality is is that there was a there it was repugnant to talk about a cross in fact you have Greek philosophers saying we don't even talk about crucifixion in mixed company we don't talk about it because it is simply a barbaric way to put to death criminals and slaves it wasn't what you talked about in in polite company it was a message that 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 in a sense uh, reeked of that which was in every way impolite culturally insensitive. It was something that spoke about a horror. It was something that um, Roman citizens weren't even crucified. If you were a Roman citizen, you could commit a capital crime and you would never be crucified because there was a shame to crucifixion that was reserved again for criminals and slaves. David Garland put it like this. He said, it was not yet the old rugged cross, sentimentalized in hymns, embalmed in stained glass windows, perched on marble altars, or fashioned into golden charms. If you would have been in the first century and you'd have worn a cross around your neck, that would have been more repulsive than walking around wearing a Uh, an electric chair around your neck, you know? Nice electric chair medallion. Where'd you get that? Okay, okay. Um, I mean, by by the way, the electric chair or um, uh, lethal injection or even hanging uh, are all uh, relatively humane compared to what happened in a crucifixion. And so for Paul, the the word of the cross to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. Now, what does Paul mean by those who are perishing? Well, he's identifying, in a sense, both Jews and Greeks, and he's going to 
expand on that in a moment. But those who are perishing are, are first of all, simply those who have rejected the message of the cross. But you have to understand that (laughs) everybody would have rejected the message of the cross. There's nobody that would have thought, wow, what an ingenious idea. Redeem people by having someone crucified. And so Paul says it's just foolishness to those who are perishing. But probably more significantly than just people who reject the message of the cross. It is those who are simply a part of this present age. We're going to see this emphasis throughout this section. And so I would say something like this. Because the cross and the resurrection, in a sense, bring about the age to come, and in a real sense, bring a close to this age, so that this age is now what? Passing away, which Paul's going to talk about in chapter 2. This present age is passing away, right? The Bible tells us that over and over again, right? In 1 John chapter 2, the passage Conrad preached in uh, Sunday afternoon, th- this world is passing away with its lust. In other words, this, this world and this present age is in the process of perishing, It's perishing because God has pronounced judgment upon it. And in other words, those who belong to this present age are perishing along with it. And those who are locked into this present age and who are held captive by this present age, of course, look at the message of the cross as absolute foolishness. It is utter and complete nonsense. It was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. You, you see, you don't have, you don't have the option of thinking that Jesus is a good moral teacher. You don't have the option of thinking that Christianity is a nice philosophy of life defined by the Sermon on the Mount. That's not an option. That's not Christianity. Christianity is rooted in a bloody Roman cross and a crucified Messiah. Okay, And so for Paul, he said, look, those who belong to this age, look at that cross and the me- they hear the message of that cross. They hear a message of a, a savior. A savior who died the death of a common criminal or slave on a Roman cross. And they say, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. In fact, there's a famous piece of um, graffiti in the first century and uh, found on the, um, on the wall of a home. And there is a, of course, it's just carved into a stone wall and it is a man who's bowing before a cross And a donkey's hanging on the cross. 
and it says Alexander worships. That's what people thought. That's what they thought. And the message that somehow God in human flesh would die on a cross was absolute, utter folly to those in the first century. But not everybody looks at the message of the cross that way. Those who are perishing, those who are a part of this age which is passing away, they're blind to the message of the cross. And in fact, they can't see it. it, it it's just, it's, it's utter nonsense to them. But then Paul draws an immediate contrast. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so uh, understand that there's a, there's a radical contrast here. You have the word of the cross to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Contrast, perishing, being saved, foolishness, power. That's the contrast. And so what does Paul mean by those who are being saved? It's those who have actually entered into, as it were, the age to come through faith in the risen Christ. It's those who have actually entered into life through the crucified one. They're going to be the same ones, those who are being saved, are going to be the same ones who are called the called. Okay, The called are those who are being saved. Now, it's possible that being saved could just be, in a sense, sort of an ongoing descriptive phrase for Paul. In other words, just sort of a, this broad category of people who are being saved. Or Paul could be actually indicating something else, um, in a sense, depicting that there are phases to God's saving work. It's, it's, it's not easy to tell what he's actually doing, but... This is true whether Paul is intending it here or not. And that is that there are three stages or tenses to salvation. I have been saved. I'm being saved. And I will be saved. Okay. And it could be that Paul's just in a sense making a big descriptive category. Those who are being saved. Or he may be saying those who are in the process of being saved. And so uh, Anthony Thistleton offers this great analogy. He says, imagine you're on a sinking ship and you're going to die. The ship is going down and you will most certainly perish. But then a lifeboat comes and you are saved. What that means is, is that you are rescued from the peril of the sinking ship by being brought onto the lifeboat. But then there's another sense in which you are being saved as the lifeboat is making its way back to the shore. And then there's a sense in which you're finally saved when that lifeboat actually anchors in and you are now safely on the shore. And so there's a real sense in which salvation parallels those, those three tenses. We can say with, with absolute full confidence that I have been saved. 
That is, I've been justified, but I am no more justified today than I will be on the last day. All right? So I am, I am saved. I am adopted. I am reconciled. I am redeemed. Those things are, are certainties for me. But there's also another sense in which I am being saved. Now, sometimes we talk about that in terms of the process of sanctification, but the fact is, is that just as sure as I needed to be saved when I was 13, I need to be saved today. Okay. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to be saved tomorrow. Okay. And I'm not talking about going back and starting all over again. What I'm talking about is this journey between a completed salvation and a consummated salvation, right? And so, um, what do I need to be saved from? Well, sin would be one, myself would be the other, right? I mean, by the way, if you've not come to the realization that you need to be saved from yourself every day, then you don't know yourself, Okay? I need to be saved from myself, right? And so if you remember that uh, reformed theologian, Pogo, we've met the enemy and it's us, right? Okay. Some of you are thinking, Pogo, who, was he in Martin Bootser's time? No, um, but it, we're, we're our own enemies. And so we're in the process of being saved, Now, thanks be to God, that process is secure because I have been saved. I know that I will be saved. I know that I will reach the shore. I know that I will attain final salvation because of what God has already done for me in Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, for those who are being saved, what is the message of the cross? Well, the message of the cross is is to to us, notice how Paul includes himself, to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Now, you have, you, have to, you have to see this. If you don't see these ironies and these contrasts, then you miss the power of Paul's argument. There is a great irony. The weakness of the cross is nothing less than the demonstration of the power of God. The foolishness of the message of the cross is nothing less than the power of God. There is a sense in which the cross is, is, is in a, the, the, the very embodiment, as it were, of utter abject weakness. What did it look like when Jesus of Nazareth is crucified and hanging on a Roman cross, did it look majestic? Did it look powerful? Did it look impressive? Did it look like he was paying for the sins of the world? And the answer is no. It looked like he was an ordinary criminal dying an ignominious, awful, horrific, barbaric, inhumane death, just like the other two guys on either side of him. It was the absolute pinnacle of weakness. He could not have even scratched his own nose. And yet it is in that message that there is the power of God. It's absolutely 
magnificent when you think about it. What, what, what's happening is, 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 is the cross is bringing about, as it were, these, the, not just ironies, but these great reversals. And so, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And so, how well can you improve upon the power of God? The answer is you can't improve on the power of God. And so this message about a bloody cross and a crucified Messiah is the power of God. So why do I say that it represents or brings about the great reversals? Well, because first of all, it's power through weakness. It's wisdom through folly. It's glory through shame. It's life through death. It's victory through apparent defeat. And so why is, why is this message of the cross the power of God? Because through the cross... Through this message of foolishness, weakness, and scandal, God decides through that to make himself known. You cannot know God except through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through that message of the cross that not only does he make himself known, but he saves those who are dead in trespasses and sins. The demonstration of the gospel's power in the life of somebody that's dead in trespasses and sins is a bigger, bigger power demonstration than when God parted the Red Sea. The fact that the message of the cross came to you and it came to you with power and, and, and God used it to bring you out of death into life is a bigger miracle than when Moses raised the staff and the Red Sea was parted. Raising sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins is no small task. And so the gospel, the message of the cross is the power of God. God makes himself known through it. God redeems sinners through it. And he transforms lives through it. And he transforms all of history through it. And he transforms all of the future through it. And he one day will destroy all evil through it. That's the power of God. That is the power of God. There's nothing you can do to improve on that. Right? You say, I, I want my loved ones to, to be saved. I want my loved ones to know the forgiveness of sins. But, you know, if I tell them that Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified for them, And then God raised him from the dead. I think if I had something a little more sophisticated, they might be willing to accept 
Christianity. You understand Paul's point right now? If you give them something a little more sophisticated, you've not given them Christianity. Because Christianity is summed up in the message of the cross. Now, for sure, Paul is going to expand on this and notice the way that he does it. He's going he's to go to the Old Testament now, right? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so Paul is not just, Paul's not just going to say, yeah, you know, these are my thoughts. I've been thinking about this for a long time. You know, I spent some time in the Arabian desert and, and uh, these are the things that have come to my mind. Uh, rather, what he's going to do is he's going to say, what I'm telling you, it comes from the Old Testament. I'm not telling you anything new. And so the, the, the first text in verse 19 is actually a quotation from Isaiah 29:14. Now, notice the way that Paul does this. He says, for it is written. Better, better translated, for it stands written. Okay. Appealing to the authority of God's written word. Right? So here is this idea of, of God doing what? Of, of actually taking that which is foolish and demonstrating his power through it. Paul says that very truth, that very reality is rooted in the Old Testament and he quotes Isaiah twenty nine fourteen, and then verse 20 is an allusion to Isaiah thirty three eighteen. Now, I will destroy the wisdom of, of the wise. Who are the wise here? Who are the wise that are in view? Well, it's not the wise that are wise because of the gospel. It's the wise of, of this age, right? It's the, the wisdom that comes from the wise ones themselves. In other words, it goes back to the, the worldly wisdom or the merely human wisdom. And so the text says God is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And then I would translate the second line like this. In the intelligence of the intelligent, I will nullify. Okay? And again, where does the intelligence come from? Well, it comes from the intelligent. In other words, it's mere human intelligence. And so what is in view here is the idea that God always has been and always will be opposed to mere human wisdom and mere human intelligence, as it were, mere human reason that demands that it stands on its own autonomously apart from God. Now, now, by the way, this, this idea of autonomous human wisdom and autonomous human intelligence goes all the way back to the garden. Okay? Because when, when Adam and Eve made the decision to actually eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did it as an act of independence from God in the, in the desire to be like God, 
Okay? And so at that moment, in a sense, woven into the DNA of fallen humanity is this idea of independence or autonomy from God. So, let's say you're talking to somebody uh, about the origins of the universe. And you say, well, the Bible says, and what do they say? Well, tell me what the Bible says, because I recognize it as authoritative revelation from Almighty God. Right? Is that the attitude of, of, of most people? It's like, the Bible? Don't quote the Bible to me. What's the Bible to most people? Just an ancient book filled with just silly stories and fairy tales and, 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 and all of that. So I don't even want to hear what the Bible has to say. By the way, when a person says, I don't even want to hear what the Bible has to say, it is just another way of saying, I'm not interested in what God says. What I'm interested in is what I think. Okay? Now, there's a term for people who are only interested in what they think. It's called a fool. Okay? And yet, isn't it interesting? Almost everybody is an expert in theology. Everybody is a self-proclaimed expert in things of religion. And, of course, politics. Self-proclaimed experts. So that if people would listen to me, the world would be a much better place. And if people would listen to my opinion on religion everybody would be as smart as I am. We, 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 believe it or not, it's true of everybody in this room, we all suffer from a fundamental disease that makes us think that we are the smartest people on the planet. Right? And so God says... Your autonomous wisdom, your autonomous reasoning. Now, is God opposed to reason? Is God opposed to us using our brains? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. But he wants us to use human reason and the ability to think in submission to his divine authority. This is not hard. This is not hard. In other words, God has never given you the permission to think your own thoughts after yourself. What he requires of you is to think your thoughts after him. In other words, your wisdom, your intelligence, your reason is subject to the authority of God's revelation. 
When it is not, then it is on the basis of our own authority, which at the end of the day is just not that impressive, nor persuasive to anybody but me. And so God says, I'm opposed to mere human wisdom and intelligence that stands in independence from me, and I'm going to bring it into judgment. And so isn't it interesting that our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 prays and he says, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to babes. In other words, God is under no obligation to those who think they're the smartest one in the universe. He's under no obligation to those who think they're the smartest one in the room. He's under no obligation to those who refuse to bow the knee to him in knowledge and understanding. And in fact, he says, I'm committed to revealing myself to people and I'm committed to to making myself known and I'm committed to giving them wisdom and knowledge and understanding, but only to those who are like children who in humility will receive from me. But those who think that they know it all already, I don't know them anything. In fact, I'm just going to destroy their know-it-all-ism. And then verse 20. <laughs> you, have to, you have to get a, a, an appreciation for Paul here. Quotes the Old Testament. And then he says, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? As one commentator puts it, it's just terrific. He says, these are not invitations for all comers to enter into the fray, but cries of the victor after the battle has been fought and won. The wise, the teacher of the law, the philosopher of this age are nowhere to be found for their wisdom has been destroyed and the intelligent, their intelligence frustrated. They've been outsmarted and upstaged. They have nothing more to offer. They have slunk away in defeat. And so in other words, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? It's not as if Paul's saying, okay, I've thrown down the gauntlet. Who wants to take me on? It is, it is the cry of one who looks at God's ultimate victory in destroying the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent and actually says, where are they now? Where are they now? There's coming a day when they will not stand. Now, he says, where are the wise? This would have an appeal to the Greek, the sage. When he says, where is the scribe? That would obviously appeal to what people group? To Jewish people, right? Because scribe was just another way of saying, you know, a Jewish theologian in a sense. So, so where, where's, the, where's the really smart Greek guys? Where is the really in, uh, educated Jewish scribe? Where's the debater of this age? And it's the, this very point. Where's the debater of this age that Paul is appealing to that that thing that the Corinthians just loved to latch on to, people who were good at rhetoric, people who were good at debate, people who were good orators. And Paul says, where are they now? 
And notice it's qualified with this age. What's happening with this age? It's perishing. What's happening with this age? It's passing away. I will tell you, I thank God that it is. I thank God that it is. Is the foolishness of this age, does it ever just drive you crazy? Does the insanity of this age just ever just drive you crazy? Do you ever just, do you ever just like smack yourself in the forehead and say, what's wrong with people? And guess what? If you noticed, it gets worse. You know, it's, it's not like um, you can say, well, boy, those dark ages, man, those poor people back then. <laughs> right? I mean, let's face it. We've not, not only not improved from the dark ages, we've gotten worse. Okay? At least there was actually a consistent, coherent worldview in the dark ages. <laughs> Maybe they weren't as dark as everybody thought they were. I mean, we're in, we're in the dark ages now, and yet we are flooded with information, and we're flooded with, with knowledge. But aren't you glad the internet has made us all so much smarter? It's just, this is the foolishness of this age which is passing away. And so the philosopher and the rhetorician and the politician and all of the people who actually get the attention of the world, there's coming a day where triumphantly it will be said, where are they now? Their philosophy, their theology, their ability to debate, guess what? It means nothing now. Because everything they stood for, locked into this age, is now gone. And that means that one of these days, one of these days, God's message of the cross, which is the very embodiment of the wisdom and power of God, will be vindicated in the sight of everyone. And only those who have believed will stand on that day. So those who consider themselves wise and intelligent like all of these brilliant college professors we see all the time. They're the ones that actually are open to self-deception. When you think you're super smart and you think you're super wise, whatever you tell yourself must be the truth. And of course, it's nothing but self-deception Uh, Those who are the self-proclaimed wise and the self-proclaimed intelligent not only are the most liable to self-deception, but they're also the ones who are typically the most ardently resistant to God's truth. And then Paul asks this. He says, has 
not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. There's a neat little thing in, 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 in the Greek language, and that is you can actually tell the person the answer that you want them to come up with by the way you phrase the question. And so we could say something like this. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You bet he has. You bet he has. Yes, indeed, a thousand times yes. Now, understand the wisdom of the world here is not just a belief system. Okay, don't, don't just think that there's a belief system that is simply the wisdom of the world. Wisdom of the world is this autonomous human reason rooted in human pride. And so no matter what the belief system, it is that which is, which is separated from the wisdom of God, purposely so, and dependent on me. Paul says, God, God shows the wisdom of this world for what it really is. Foolishness. You know, the great thing is, is that there are times where God does that now. So little, little breakthroughs and little glimmers of, of just showing how utterly foolish the wisdom of the world really is. There are, there are times where the wisdom of the world just absolutely backfires and it just is shown for the utter and complete sham that it really is. Now, of course, those who are self-deceived, they get to write the headlines, right? So they can come up with a, they can come up with a spin so that it doesn't look quite as foolish. But God says, that's what I do. Take the gospel and I take the wisdom of this world and I bring them into an absolute head on collision at the intersection of life so that I show the foolishness of this world's wisdom. That's what God does when he converts us. That's what God does when he saves us. There, if, if you think that you're a Christian because you're really smart, you're not a Christian. Do you understand that? If you think, wow, I figured out the mystery of the universe and I unlocked the key of God's truth, and I'm awesome. You're not a Christian. You're just not. Okay? Being a Christian actually means that you've come to see the folly of self. The folly of of being your own Lord, the folly of being your own boss, the folly of living by your own agenda, the folly of making up your own rules, the folly of of setting up your own laws, 
All of it is absolute folly. And when God comes crashing into our life through the message of the cross, he obliterates our own human wisdom. He obliterates our own sense of human autonomy and reason and humbles us at the foot of the cross. I don't have anything to offer God. Nothing. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter what your education is. You could have an IQ of the room temperature of this room. And be a trophy of God's amazing, astonishing grace through the, through the word of the cross. No, no worse off than the one with the IQ of 150. Because it doesn't matter. It's not about human IQ. It's about the power of God demonstrated through the message of the cross. So the message of the cross, in the words of of Alistair McGrath, is not simply that God's ways are not our ways. It is that our ways of thinking preclude us from discerning those ways in the first place. So let me just make this abundantly clear. Unless God does something in you, you will be locked into thinking in the ways of this present age, which are passing away. You don't even have the ability, honestly, you don't even have the ability on your own to start thinking in God's wisdom. You don't have the ability. It's categories that defy your own brain power. Okay? Would you come up with the Trinity? Would you come up with a mathematical equation that says 100% God, 100% man, and yet one person? Okay? The way I think is, even though I'm not very good at math, 100 plus 100 always equals 200. In God's math, it's different. Would you actually come up with a redemptive plan that says, when you realize that you are a sinner and you cannot save yourself, look to one who was crucified on a bloody Roman cross and was raised up from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God, and then you'll be saved. Nobody thinks up stuff like that. Nobody. Nobody comes up with human religious ideas that actually make us out to be cosmic criminals. In our redemption stories, we're our own heroes. In God's, we're the villain and Jesus is the hero. Okay? And, so, and so when the gospel, when the word of the cross comes into your life, there is a collision and God has to do something Powerful, divinely powerful, and that has to happen in your life before you ever experience the power of the word of the cross. I've told you this probably before. So I was raised Catholic. I'd go to mass. And at the front of our church, our, our, the church building was in the shape of a cross. And up front, there was just this giant it was crucifix. And then on the sidewalls, there were the stations of the cross. Boy, I'd look at Jesus in his suffering, and I'd look at Jesus on the cross. And you know what? I would just, 
I just feel so bad for him. I just feel sorry for him. What a terrible thing to happen to somebody who's so nice. And yet when, by God's grace, my eyes were opened, it was not a feeling of pity on the Son of God. It was a feeling of faith and dependence and trust in one who did for me what I could not do for myself. God has to do something in us for the word of the cross to be the power of God. The cross is a message that by necessity does not allow those who embrace it to remain (laughs) self-absorbed. This is what Paul's trying to communicate to the Corinthians. You can't embrace the message of the cross and remain self-absorbed. The message of the cross is one of humiliation, shame, scandal, weakness, folly. And it's not our job. Oh, oh, church, listen. It is not our job to show how academically stimulating or intellectually sophisticated the message of the cross is. It's our job to embrace it. And to embrace the message of the cross is to embrace our own inability, trusting in God's ability. To embrace the message of the cross is to repudiate our own wisdom and to trust God's wisdom. So, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of the cross. Thank you to us who are being saved. It is your power. And Father, we pray for everyone in this room tonight that they would be among those who are being saved And Father, any who are among those who are perishing, we pray tonight you would rescue them through the message of the cross. And we pray that you would do so for the glory of your name. And we ask this in the name of the one who was crucified, died, and was buried, and rose again on our behalf. Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.